find a seat. And uh, pull, if you brought your Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 4, where we're going to be this morning, and feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well uh, to help you follow along. Well, today we're going to talk about temptation, so I thought we'd spend a little time at the beginning of the service passing the mic around, and you guys can share some of the things that you're tempted by right now. So, um, you know, and, and no service has people wanted to take me up on that. In, in fact, in, uh, in seminary, they often teach you, you know, at the beginning of a sermon, share an experience from your life where this passage raised the question that you're going to address in the sermon. And I thought, oh, I can share some of the things that are tempting to me at the beginning of the sermon. And I thought, there's no way I want to do that, right? <laughs> why, why is that? Why is temptation so embarrassing to talk about? Are the things that are tempting to us so embarrassing to talk about? After all, it's not because you're some sort of weirdo that you experience temptation. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Right? That means that every person in this room, every person who has ever lived has experienced temptation. And when I say every person that ever lived, I include Adam and Eve before they had sinned experienced temptation. Jesus, as we'll see in the passage today, even though he was a perfect person, experienced temptation. So it should not surprise you or me when that comes in our life. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we all experience temptation to the same, in the same ways or at the same uh, levels or the same intensities. There might be some things that are very tempting to you that aren't to me. And there might be some things that are very tempting to me that aren't very tempting to you. But all of us experience temptation. In today's passage, we're going to look at how Jesus experienced temptation and how he responded to it. We're going to look at why he experienced temptation, what happened as a result of that, and how he responded to it. And then at the end, what happens after he's tempted. My goal in our sermon today is to show you in the fullest way why Jesus' temptation matters, how his willingness to stand up to it has a tremendous impact on your salvation and on mine, and in his process of withstanding temptation, what that uh, could teach us about how we can respond to temptation in our lives today. But let's start in verse 1 here, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was tempted in order to teach us something profound about God. Jesus' temptation shows us who he was and what his purpose was and what his mission was and how we're to follow him. Jesus had recently been baptized at the end of chapter 3. The Father had opened the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And what happens when the Spirit descends on Jesus? He's driven out into the wilderness to spend 40 days fasting and to be tempted by the devil. This is important because this is the very place. The wilderness is the place that Israel has failed over and over in the past. This is going to be this whole temptation narrative. We can't just read it in and of itself. We have to read it in light of what the whole story of Scripture has shown us. Now, you might remember at the beginning of the Bible, uh, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve experienced temptation in the garden. And then later in Exodus and uh, throughout the Exodus narrative, uh, the people of Israel experienced temptation in the wilderness. Now, Jesus is going to go back to, those, to, to that place, to the place where Israel has failed, where Adam and Eve has failed, and he's going to be the one who's faithful where people have failed before him. Jesus is the better Adam and the better Israel. So, Jesus is about to take on the devil, and he fasts for 40 days. Why does he do that? Does that make him stronger or weaker? Does, would fasting for 40 days make you stronger or weaker? What do you think? 
Would fasting for 40 minutes make you stronger <laughs> or weaker? Uh, it's a tricky question, right? I mean, because the, the physical answer would be weaker, but presumably it's making him stronger, right? So I, I would say the answer is yes, right? That, that in his weakness, he finds the strength of God. He's going to stand up to temptation. Well, before we get into how that plays out, let's ask a question. What is temptation? You guys all had a sense of what we were talking about and when you sort of nervously laughed when I said we were going to ask you what you're tempted by. So what is temptation? Right? What, what it's, if I were to define it, I would say it's our desire for a good thing in the wrong way. Temptation is a desire for a good thing in the wrong way. It's an attempt to grab something that we need or that we want, that we're made for, but it's an attempt to grab it at a time or in a place in a way that is forbidden or unhelpful or destructive. It may be a desire for intimacy or a desire to be uh, nurtured or cared for. It may be a desire to experience fulfillment or longing, but it's done not in a way that's intended. It's in a way that's destructive to ourselves, it's offensive to God, and hurtful to other people around us. We see this in the beginning uh, with Adam and Eve, right? When they're tempted by food, but they've experienced the fullness of God's provision for them in the Garden of Eden, and there's one tree that they're forbidden from eating from. And what does Eve say about the fruit? She says, when she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. It's something that she's made to have, but not in this way or of this tree. Temptation is the same thing in our lives, right? That we're longing for something good, but we're trying to meet it in a way that's destructive. And every temptation, therefore, becomes a theological crisis. It's a crisis of faith of, do I trust that God's limits are good for me? Or do I buck against those limits? Do I say, I won't wait. I won't mind the limit here. I will not honor what is forbidden because I don't trust that you have my best interests at heart. That's what the serpent tests Eve with, right? When he says, you know that God has just done this because he's afraid of you becoming powerful. Is God holding out on me? All our temptations ask that question. And then this is obvious, but it's worth mentioning, I think. Temptations are optional. Not the experience of temptation, but in that moment, whether you give in to temptation or not is a choice of your will. Um, with the power of the Spirit and ha- habits developed over a lifetime, certainly, but temptations aren't something you have to indulge. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that passage I mentioned earlier, it goes on to say, um, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's hard to believe because a lot of our temptations feel so congruent with our person, with our identity, that to not give in to them would feel like we're betraying ourselves in some meaningful way. You know, we have a flash of anger and we say, I have to get even. Or a flash of envy and say, I need that. Or a flash of lust and say, I need that experience or that person. It would feel betraying to ourselves sometimes on a feeling level to not give in to that. But this concept of temp- biblical concept of temptation is so important because it's not a sense of fatalism or determinism. You don't have to give in to your longings or your temptations in that moment. And you also don't have to deny them as if they don't matter. But we carry our temptations with God, knowing that they point to something good, but that they also can betray us uh, as we try to grab what is good in the wrong way. We don't have to give in 
we are free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, as, uh, as Jesus will say in, in John chapter 8. Well, um, one more thing that's worth mentioning before we get into it. Um, it's really important that Jesus withstands temptation. You know, when we, when we read in Hebrews 2 that Jesus has been tested in every way as we are, yet was without sin, that's a really significant thing for us to examine because of a few reasons. One, it means that um, he's able to be our sacrifice in our place. He has withstood every temptation that we experience yet without sin. He's lived the perfect life that we've refused to live in our lives. And he did that not just in a vacuum or not just in a place of protection, but in opposition to the devil in the wilderness. It's not that he was sort of holed up in some sort of monastery to be kept unstained from the world, but that he goes into the difficult, most difficult places and experience, experiences temptation to the fullest degree. Temptation that you and I have never experienced because we just give in before that, right? Um, I once, in a moment of hubris when I was uh, younger, asked a, a guy at the gym, hey, you know, I, I'm concerned if this leg press machine can hold enough weight for me. What's the maximum? I said it like that too, I'm sure. Um, and then he told me, and it was like 1,000 pounds or 1,200 pounds or something. I was like, oh, that is not a problem. <laughs> My knees are going to give out long before that. Um, right, we give in long before we reach the limit. But Jesus experiences the fullness of temptation. Now, sometimes we have a hard, it's hard for us to believe that Jesus really experiences every temptation. We think, you know, he lived 2,000 years ago, like, Think about all the temptations that seem so modern and so novel in our generation. Think about all the ways that your phone carries temptations towards envy and lust and anger and wrath and gossip. And that's, like, that's just Instagram. But, um, <laughs> and you think, could, could really, could Jesus experience every temptation? I have so much new temptation he doesn't have. But you know, temptation, as exciting as it sometimes feels, isn't very novel it always follows the same pattern, right? There's something good that we want or we need, and we try to grab it in a devious way. And that could be in the first century or the 21st century. And then we're provoked with this question of, does God care about me? Like, there's this crisis of faith of, will I trust in God's hands, or will I try to grab it in my own hands? And whatever the it is might change from generation to generation, but the temptation cycle is the same. Will I withstand temptation or give in to it? And Jesus withstands every temptation of the devil. And in so doing, he exercises, begins the process of exercising his authority over Satan that's fulfilled and culminated at the cross. And in so doing, shows us how we can respond to temptation in our lives as well. All right, well, let's get into the temptations themselves, starting in verse chapter 3. Verse chapter, that doesn't make any sense. In verse 3, in verse 3. All right, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. All right, who's tempted here to turn rocks into bread? This is like the, the subway temptation or something. Um, no, I mean, this, this feels irrelevant to our life, right? Like, why is this a temptation? What's the problem here? I understand that Jesus is hungry after 40 days. What's the temptation? Well, in the verse, you, you read, if you are the son of God. Um, a quick Greek lesson for a second. In, in our language, we use if and sometimes to mean it could happen or not happen. Uh, in Greek, the way the sentence is constructed really can be translated, since you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God and you are, how did you get hung out to dry out here? What are you doing in the wilderness? I thought you were the beloved Son. 
God has abandoned you, left you to starve to death. If you're really the son of God, you deserve better than this. Right? This is the temptation of entitlement, and this is the temptation of despair. This temptation is there in all of our lives. Like, will we live within limits or not? Will we live, in, live within the limits that God has put into our lives or not? Or are we on our own to satisfy our own desires and our own longings, our own hopes? Do we have to look out for ourselves? Like, is God malevolently restricting joy from our life that we have to grab and claim on our own? This temptation, while it's about stones and bread in Jesus' life, is about a number of things in our life. In Galatians 5, it talks about all the different ways the temptation can work out. It says that, you know, that the acts of the flesh can be sexual immorality, like refusing to live within the limits of marital sexuality. It can show up in jealousy or rivalry or envy, where we refuse to live within the limits of God being the authority on who is blessed and who is not. It can, be, it can show up in fits of anger when we say, I will be the judge and I insist on things my way. But where, wherever it shows up, it's the same temptation. Like, will we live within the limits that God has set? And in Jesus' case, the limit is being in the wilderness, led by the Spirit, for 40 days of hunger. And Jesus responds that he will live within the limit. He says in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To paraphrase that, Jesus is saying, it would be better for me to starve to death out here than for me to give in and go my own way apart from God's leadership. If I do what you're saying, Satan, I will feed myself now, but I will cut myself off from that which truly nourishes my soul, which is to rely on God himself. This quote, man does not live by bread alone, it comes from Deuteronomy 8. In fact, all of Jesus' quotes come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. It's a passage from the Old Testament where um, it talks about Israel's experience of temptation and how they failed to live up to what God called them to do. In these quotes, Jesus is saying, just because Israel failed, just because your temptations worked on him, doesn't mean they'll work on me. Um, no problem. Uh, all right, the original quote from Deuteronomy 8 was about manna, actually. Do you guys remember the Old Testament story about manna? When Israel's wandering in the desert, uh, manna from heaven is given them every day as a reminder of God's daily provision and protection for them. And Israel has the choice every day whether to trust that God will provide food in the wilderness or not. And Jesus says that temptation that Israel failed, that by controlling and complaining, I will not fail in. Well, this first temptation tests Jesus' trust in the goodness of God, and the second is going to test whether he really believes that God will protect him. So in verse 5, the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And in verse 6, it says, if you are the Son of God, or since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan attempts in this passage to manipulate a psalm um, and manipulate Jesus in the process. And says, look, Jesus, if, if you are the Son of God, you must know, after all, Satan's probably memorized more scripture than any of us, you must know that you're going to be protected. You must know that God would never let anything bad to happen to you. You're entitled to be protected by angels, aren't you? If you're really the Son of God, how could you get hung out to dry in a way where you're not uh, safe? So what's the temptation here? Henry Nouwen called this the, the temptation to be spectacular, the temptation to be noticed and seen. I, I think in, in this case, 
that noticing and being seen takes the form of, I'm entitled to be taken care of. I'm entitled to be safe. God, I've done so much for you. I deserve that you're going to protect me. The temptation here is to force God's hand and to test him. And Jesus in verse 7 refuses. He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So how does this play out in your life and in my life? Where are we tempted to test God? Well, if the first temptation is temptation of will we live within limits, and that's sometimes maybe an earlier stage of development, I think this next test is a test that we sometimes come to after we've walked with Christ for a while, where we say, I deserve better than this. I've served so much. I've been on so many committees. I've been an elder. I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've been a parent. I've raised my kids the right way. God, you owe me now. It's a temptation to say we deserve better from God. In fact, this quote in Jesus' response, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, comes to Deuteronomy 6.16. The original version of the quote was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. All right, so what's Massa? Massa is the place during the Exodus where the people of Israel said, we will not go any further. We deserve better than this. We don't know where our water's going to come from if we go out in the wilderness. We don't trust that God's going to deliver it from us, for us. Moses, if you don't provide water for us, we're going to kill you and we're going to go back to Egypt. This is the line that we won't go any further on. <clears throat> it's a moment of weakness <clears throat> and of failure for Israel. Thanks, sweetie. This is not like a prop out the water and the mat. This is just my throwing. <laughs> Um, it it was a moment of failure of Israel's faith where they refused based on their sense of entitlement. And God tells, in that story, Jesus says, I will not fall into the same test. I will not say that God must do this for me. In our generation, there's a, a popular, but I think ultimately destructive teaching that we're supposed to take to God prayers and say, God, I demand this of you. I insist on this from you. I claim this in the name of the Lord. Now, I, I say dangerous because there's a helpful thing about praying God's, praying scripture back to God. But the idea that we're going to name it and claim it and that God owes it to us if we do certain things for him is really the fulfillment of this temptation of putting the Lord to the test. Healthy doubt can be um, a good part of the Christian life, but this isn't healthy doubt. This is entitlement. And this is trying to manipulate God and make him do what we want him to do. All right, the third temptation in verse 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the least uh, subtle of Satan's temptations, right? It just gets to the core issue. If you worship me, you can have everything that you want. Now, this one seems kind of easy to diagnose, right? We're not usually tempted to worship Satan. I mean, that's not usually a temptation in our lives. But the, the issue behind it is one that's really common. What if the ends justify the means, right? I mean, after all, Jesus, didn't you come to earth in order to announce a kingdom that would spread throughout all the earth? And you don't have to do that by dying, right? What if you could just skip the dying part? What if you could just have the end if you were just willing to sacrifice the means, this is a temptation that's really common in all of our lives, the ends justifying the means temptation. Right? Like if, if, if I just do this one thing that's questionable, then in the long term, I'll be a good person. Right? Like, okay, I, I just need to do this for a while. I just need to get this out of my system when I'm young, and then when I'm older, I'll live a holy life. Or, 
I, I, just, I just need for this season to blow off some steam so that I can be a better husband and father at home. Or I just need to be able to establish our family financially, and then I'll go on straight and narrow when I'm older. Or I just need to be able to get through the next couple of years, and then I'll, I'll get my drinking under control in the long term. The ends don't justify the means. They don't for Jesus and they don't for us. Jesus says to him in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You might remember in the Garden of Eden, uh, part of the reason that Eve takes the fruit is that she can be like God. And when the exodus happens and they're in the wilderness, uh, the people of Israel decide that they're going to worship the golden calf. And Jesus says, I will not fall into those temptations. I will live under the authority of God. I will not take the shortcuts. I will not uh, try to use the ends to justify the means, but I will live under his authority, even if it takes me to the cross. Well, how can we learn from Jesus' response to these temptations? A a couple things worth mentioning before we close. Uh, One, Satan is a dangerous person in the world, but he cannot overpower us. 1 Peter 5 says that Satan is like a roaring lion who seeks to kill and destroy But James also says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. How can those two things both be true at the same time? Well, quick illustration. Um, Should you be scared of Somali pirates? What do you think? Should you be scared of pirates from Somalia? I don't know. It depends, right? If you take a $100 million yacht off the eastern coast of Africa and you just lay anchor out there and have a big party, like, yeah, you probably should. Like, they're they're probably going to steal your yacht and kill everyone on board, right? There's a good reason, right? They're much better militarily trained than I am. But if I stay on land, if I stay somewhere safe, or if I go over the eastern coast of Africa under the protection of the U.S. Navy, like, I have nothing to worry about, right? Ura? I don't know how, what the Navy says. Right? <laughs> My note says drive a yacht. Do you drive a yacht? Do you sail it? I don't know. Pilot. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the <laughs> sailor's here. Uh, what's my point? Right? There's no, we don't need to worry about Satan. Jesus is not tormented by Satan. We, don't, we aren't possessed by Satan as Christians. If you're in Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's not a need to, to fear, but the enemy does seek to destroy. Right? And so um, as long as we live under the authority of Christ, we need to be aware of, but also um, under, under Christ's authority, not, not Satan's. Not worry about Satan. And secondly, I think we really should learn how Jesus responds to temptation with how he responds with Scripture. This is sort of the second big thing that I think we need to know about how Jesus responds to temptation that we can learn from as well. He responds with Scripture not just as a sort of silver bullet that uh, cuts through because of the words themselves, but because Scripture has realigned his sense of what is true. You know, temptation tends to turn us upside down. It tends to make up, down, and, and Satan has a way of twisting what seems valuable and important in the moment. And Scripture has a way of anchoring our souls, of telling us what is most true and most important to know. Well, the last verse, verse 11, says that when the devil left him, behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This was, you might remember, uh, Satan's uh, promise or threat in the second temptation. If you throw yourself down from the temple, won't the angels catch you? Well, the angels come now not to catch him spectacularly, but to prepare him for the journey. They come not to spare him from stubbing his toe, but to prepare him for giving up his life on the cross. And in fact, Jesus, at the night of his betrayal, will say the angels could have come him even, could have come even on the night he was betrayed to spare him 
from the death on the cross. But he doesn't want that. And the Father doesn't want that. Because the reason Jesus withstands temptation is not just to protect himself, but to give his life as a ransom for us. Jesus conquered temptation for you and for me. He came and lived a holy life and withstood temptation, even, it says in the Garden of Gethsemane, to the point of blood, in order that he could give his life for us. In fact, when Jesus will turn things, when, when he will transform bread, it is not just so that he can satisfy his own hunger, but so that he can bless it, break it, and give it to us, because his body has been broken for us. When Jesus is cast down at the temple, it's not to protect himself, but he'll be cast down at the temple in front of the leaders in order to be executed for our sin. Jesus would gain authority over all the kingdoms in the end. In fact, that's what he says at the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. But he would gain it not by compromising, but by going to his own death on the cross. So how do you and I respond to temptation in our lives? A couple questions for you to pray about and think about this week. Jesus' three temptations, right? The, the temptation uh, to not live within limits, the temptation um, to be entitled and to test God, and then thirdly, uh, the temptation... Um, why do I always forget the third temptation? The, the, yeah, the third temptation to have the ends justify the means. Where do those three show up in your life? And then you might also think and talk to God about when temptation comes, like how do I normally respond do I just give in so quick I don't even recognize it? Like, I don't even notice there's a temptation there because I'm just so quick to give in to it? Or do I tend to hold up for a while and then give in later? Do I tend to talk to people about it or not? Like, what tends to happen, God? And that just might be a, a topic for you to pray about with him. And then you might just ask God, God, would you give me a longing for, some hol- for holiness in this area? Like, would you give me a picture of if I withstood temptation better in the next year, I know you wouldn't love me anymore. Like if, if I withstood temptation better a year from now, I'm not more your son or daughter than I am now. But how would my life be different? Like how would I be better able to love the people in my life? How would I be better able to have my heart soft towards you if I withstood temptation more than I am now? And if you want to talk about more about certain temptations or struggles you have that are really uh, besetting in your life, uh, feel free to give me an email or something this week and we can talk about it. Let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you conquered temptation not just once or not just in one moment, but throughout your entire life. Thank you that in your example of withstanding temptation, we can learn what it means to live a holy life with you. Thank you that in your experience of temptation, you never gave in, you never gave up. Help us to learn from you so that we never give the devil a foothold in our lives either. In your name we pray. Amen.